From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome to a full hour of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. This is Cade Massey coming to you with the whole crew. Audie Weiner rolling down his window shades during the introduction. Eric Bradlow, Shane Jensen, everyone here on Zoom. We've been coming to you via Zoom since the pandemic hit. Coming up on four years ago, three and a half years ago, something like that. Good morning, guys. We're recording in the a.m. That's not our usual since the pandemic hit. We're usually on Tuesday afternoons, Tuesday morning this week. Schedules conspired for that, but always good to see you. Shane is looking like from home in Philadelphia. I'm from home in central Texas. Eric Bradlow in his Huntsman Hall office and Audie Weiner in the new offices across campus. Guys, we are at a kind of a rich time in the sport calendar. We are kicking off hockey, basketball. We are mid-season for college football and the NFL. And we are nearing the end. We're getting to the very peak of Major League Baseball. And I know you guys don't have your number one team in any of you in the running, but you, I think all of you have your number two team deep into the running. And so I think regardless of who's there, you'd be paying some attention. I'm very curious. We have open lines today, both halves, no guest. We're going to indulge conversation for the full hour. What do you guys have to say? What's caught your eye, especially in the world of Major League Baseball? I think I have to preempt Shane by talking about it's a coin toss because all our great teams, really epically good teams are gone. And it's yeah, except for Houston. Except for Houston. Houston, Houston which is definitely not a coin flip kind of team. Right. But it's interesting about Houston because they were not, you know, they weren't the great Houston teams of the past few years. Um, And uh, and Atlanta and Los Angeles were stacked and um, just in and out. I mean, I guess Atlanta did manage to win one game, but I think wasn't didn't uh, the Dodgers go down a straight set? (laughs) And the and the Orioles too. The Orioles Orioles too. Hundred team winner. Hundred team winner. Exactly. So those are they hadn't been swept. They hadn't been swept in like a season and a half or some crazy thing, and they went out. They went out in a sweep. Eric. Yeah. What's interesting? I mean, I know Adi and Shane know this as well. I mean, we have three teams that each had a total exactly the same record this year. 90 wins. The Rangers, the Astros, and the Phillies all won exactly 90 games. We'll get to the tiebreaker and its statistical implications in a second. And, of course, the Diamondbacks won 84 games and had a negative run-loss differential. I mean, they gave up more runs than they scored. So somebody's going to win this World Series, and the most wins they're going to have is 90, which doesn't seem like a massive number. And if you had told most people that the Phillies, the number four seed in the NL, would have home field, they would say, well, how's that possible? I mean, somebody, the Dodgers, the Braves, or the Brewers, one of them would have to get through. I mean, I understand it's a coin flip, but the well, top- it's not the same thing last year. I mean, the I, I, I think, I think weren't both the Padres and Phillies wildcard teams last year as well? This happens kind of, you know. The Astros were This, this will happen when you've got coin flips. <laughs> Yeah, that is true. It, I don't think it happened in both uh, both leagues, but you're right, I think. But even coin flips like you would expect, Shane, that one of the three top teams might emerge from that, even if there were coin flips. I'm referring to the fact that all three of the division winners were yeah. eliminated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, in both leagues, in both leagues. Um, but this well, is not, a- not Houston. Last year, no. Last year, you mean? Or yeah, yeah, yeah. Houston won the division. I mean, again, you- yeah, the Houston tied with Texas. Right, let's just, div- I, I mean, this. Well, can, can we talk about Houston because while we reify the corn coin flip yeah. theory of baseball playoffs, we should acknowledge that it doesn't. Houston it does, it does something apply to them. They almost trans- they completely transcended it. Okay, so, so he- how, how do you put those two things together in our view of the world? How how do we to understand a, a coherent view of the world in the presence of both the coin flip theory? And the Astros. Well, see, the way I see the rule world is there's rules and then there's exceptions to the rules. And, <laughs> you know, I mean, honestly, I, I don't know how to explain. I mean, I've thought a lot and I've watched a lot of Astros, you know, over the last few years. We've all been forced to <laughs> um, by their. Well, success. let's just note. Let's note for the conversation. Those who yep. may not have it, the, the what we're talking about, we're talking about, I believe, seven straight ALCS. NLCS appearances. Yep. 
right. which is just remarkable, especially in the presence of the coin flip model we have. In baseball yeah, playoffs. that's right. That's right. I mean, they've, you know, obviously won seven straight division series. You know, they've uh, they're going for their fourth pennant. You know, if they win the World Series, it'll be their third in that seven years. Obviously, that's way beyond, you know, those are Brady numbers or something like that. That's way beyond the coin flip type of thing. So I, I think, what are they doing? I, I, I mean, you you know, this is not, I don't think there's any kind of stat that I've come up with. It does, I mean, it, it does suggest maybe somehow that they're experienced. I mean, you know, experience, playoff experience perhaps is something that kind of like does really help them but honestly okay, it, could just be, it could just be a combination of luck and you know they could just have been lucky it, obviously very good team to get to the postseason every year but the difference between say them and the yankees is it more than luck well let me add one other piece to the picture and that is that usually when we see that kind of longevity or sustained sustained success it is under the same regime of some kind and usually i want to give credit to front offices or coaches but they've the only longevity in that system have been a few players, correct? Because the front office has completely turned over. So Luna, yeah, I mean, through famously, turned over through. You could still credit the front office for building this dynasty. This is this, and they, okay. they turned over through things unrelated to baseball performance. Obviously, well, this is what I'm this is what I'm saying. So Luno gets run off, and Elias and Mydell go to the Orioles, and so the top three guys, the top three guys at the Astros for those, that first championship, are gone. So you could say, but they put into place a farm system and a developmental process that has continued to pay dividends. That's possible as a theory. I don't know if that's true or not, but that's possible. I think Adi was trying to get in first. And then yeah, I, I want to respond to that. And also, I mean, this is essentially what a GM does or baseball operations is put into place the process that leads to the selection and development and training of top major leaguers. I mean, this is Chaim Bloom's complaint. He says, they fired me after I spent three, four years building up the Red Sox. Did exactly what they, he did exactly what he was instructed was to, to do. He did it well. Yeah, so that so that's, that's potentially the, the explanation. But I always wondered, and I don't know if there's any research on this, but what is it that makes a playoff team successful? Is it just luck in the sense that you're, I mean, we know, and this is something I've studied, pitchers can get good they have they can have genuinely good days and bad days and it's a set of the part of the coin toss is that your pitchers are on um enough of them you don't need that many a starter a couple starters to have terrific um, performances in a series and you're great and that's luck but is it more to it is there anything systematic that we know about baseball that suggests high performance in the playoffs i think shane wants to respond to that so shane jump in and then we'll, we'll catch her well yeah basically i think Part of the reason we struggle with this every year is that there are multiple paths to success. There isn't like one formula that we can't, you know, we keep like, you know, seeing Name or not some seeing of the paths. Because of noise. Well, Name obviously, you know, remember like, five, what was it, five, six years ago when we were all talking about like, oh, well, the way you win the postseason <laughs> is bullpen and defense because the Kansas <laughs> City Royals, remember those guys? Remember when the Kansas City Royals went to two yeah. straight World Series? They did it with bullpen and defense, you know. You know, and obviously the Houston Astros have bullpen has been a good bull. You know, again, it's hard to pick out what is kind of the game changer in the playoffs because you're talking about like, you know, mixtures of all very good teams. You know, you can look back to 2001. You know, Eric, I think's main thing is, oh, you need those two frontline aces. That's how you win the playoffs because you're probably still thinking back to 01 when you had Kurt Schilling and Randy Johnson going up against the Yankees. That's another path to success. <laughs> Okay, I've got. I want to respond, but let Eric Bryce get in Harper, here first. There's another one. Well, yeah. So I, I'm just. I was. I've been sitting here thinking about the Astros and also thinking about effect sizes. And here's what I mean. Let me go back to my comment about 390 win teams. There's an interesting triangle of records right now, which means the Phillies, the Rangers, and the Astros all ended up at 90 wins. Now the question is, who has home field in the World Series? So here's interestingly, the Phillies would have it against the Astros, but not against the Rangers. So now my question is, and I'd love Shane's thoughts on this. If you're the Phillies, let's pretend you make it to the World Series. Would you rather have home field against the experienced Astros who just beat you last year? Or would you rather not have home field, but play Texas and I'm even happy for you to condition on the fact that Texas is up two to zero. And so for the Astros to make the World Series, they'd have to have some momentum. 
win four out of five games, and then they make it to the World Series. Would you rather have home field or do you rather play against the team with less experience? Which one would you rather? If Thinking of that trade-off and effect sizes and how I mean, successful yeah. the Astros have been, what would you do? All right, I'm going to jump in. Uh, I think home field advantage is a very small effect size, particularly in the on a game-by-game basis, it's small. And I don't think – and you remember, what are you getting? You're getting essentially one extra game if needed. That's what you're getting in baseball. It goes 2-3-2, two, two, so it's not the back and forth that you get – so I would argue that it, it's uh, the weaker team is what you want. Whatever whatever team you think that is, that's the weaker team that you want. And I'm not sure we know which one of that no, is. No, 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 that's right. I don't think we know which one's weaker yeah. because, yeah. you know. Um, but I, w- I, w- I would say I would rather avoid the Astros. I mean, in this case, you, you, I mean, you set up a cool experience versus home field comparison. This is a bad team to play because the Astros are way better actually on the road in the playoffs than they are at home. Not only that, this year, I mean, oh, I, this, year, you this definitely may want be, to avoid the Astros. I'm confident, I, I haven't looked this up, but I could. I'm confident if the Astros win the World Series this year, they'll have the worst home record of any team to have won the World Series. They went 39 and 43 or 42 on the on home this year. They won look 50. Up the, the 2006 St. Louis Cardinals, weren't they the kind of famous one for? They lost, They won, okay, maybe you're right. But I mean, the Cardinals, sorry, the Astros this year won 51 road games and 39 home games. Okay, but you know, let's be, let's walk away from that. Would you going forward, you be, be you you think the Astros are genuinely worse on on at home than the road, or are you just going to look at back of that and go that's just randomness? I wouldn't be betting against. <laughs> I think fifty. I, 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 I think I I think any two sample proportion test you did of a six twenty winning percentage versus a four eighty winning percentage with an N of eighty one in both cases. I'm pretty not sure, a small sample they, size with the Astros. I'm pretty sure you would get that the Astros were a worse home team this year. But but why would that? Wouldn't you need some explanation before you bought it as a, yeah, as I a mean, viable it, result? Wouldn't you need some mechanism? Up. Yeah. Well, I mean, again, one could this make a narrative. You could make a narrative where, like, you know, road experience. I mean, it, it could be that not so much that. The Houston Astros are particularly bad at home, but the reason they do so well on the road in the playoffs is that experience thing that we've actually. I want to I want to bring up something that you just said, Cakes. I think it's an f- important statistical question, and maybe it's philosophy of science question. So we're statisticians, and so let's imagine we observe an effect that is statistically cannot be. It's not easily explained just due to chance. Not easily is a key phrase. Not easily. Okay, so now the question is, for one to believe it or think it's a real effect, does one need an explanation? And for me, the answer is no, because there's all kinds of explanations that could explain it that I can't come up with. And therefore, for me, they're just for me. The effect could be significant. I can't explain why it's happening, but I believe it's a real effect. That's for me. I hear you, and I even like the way you said it. It's just that I think the domains in which this might occur vary dramatically on the on the mechanism space. So in baseball, I think we have a reasonable understanding of the mechanism space as opposed to give me some physical science world or some computing thing where I may not be even in touch with a part, a, a fraction of the mechanism space. In, these, in this domain... I have a little bit of a hard time I'm realizing I don't I don't know that much. It's a little hard. It's not like it's some baffling, confusing, never never entered into world that's occurring. Well, let me I, let me come up with a theory, and you guys see if you can reject it. And I have one other stat from the Houston series I want to talk to you about. I um, got at least a couple more. Okay, but just 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 quickly, he suppose the following happened, that I'd have to look at the serial correlation of games. Suppose halfway through the season, I'm making this up, through 40 games, 41 games at home. Suppose the Astros were 15 and 26, okay? So already, everyone's talking to them about the fact that they stink at home. They didn't play well at home. And now, all of a sudden, it's it's a psychological effect, which is they know they've performed poorly at home. Everyone talks to them that they've performed poorly at home. And so now all of a sudden it has an impact on their performance at home. I don't think that's a totally implausible mechanism, not just for the Astros, but for any team for which there's this differential. Is that not crazy? I also want to acknowledge that I always want to preach about paying attention to what you don't know you don't know. 
So here I am saying, hey, I kind of understand the baseball space. I understand the world of possible explanations, and I don't see anything, so, I, so I'm confident that it's not something. That just can't be true. There's no telling the number of things that could be going on, even if we know this space better. That's what I said. There could be other lots places. of them. That's why I don't feel like I need an explanation. I, I do. I do. I'm, I'm just taking the edge off of what I said before, that the, the space is probably bigger than I, than I think it is. And the, but I don't think it's so big that I'm ready to accept this. Adi's trying to jump in. Adi's got a statistical observation. Yeah, so I actually calculated the p-value, and it's not even doesn't even below 0. 0.05. Um, so it's a, it's a, it's close. Might, 0.0573. But, uh, and I guess if I, I'm going to make sure. Well, I, I guess it's not worth looking at then. Yeah. So, but exactly. you know, remember there's always. It's Are we Bayesians? Are on here with a bunch of Bayesians? <laughs> but it's also post hoc. I mean, everything, if you look in the past, there's always something that looks unusual. Well, I mean, so I'm, of course, doing a two sample. So I'm looking at both sides. So uh, um, I'm looking, and, and that cuts it, that doubles it right there, right? If you had looked for the reverse home field, you would have, you would have half that. But, you know, I, I would I personally just wouldn't be betting on it unless you could divine a mechanism. Like you could say they have too many right-handed hitters, uh, left-handed hitters, and that park is bad for that. I mean, there are parks that are really bad for certain kinds of hitters, and there are yeah. handedness effects by park. There's also pitchers' parks and and, and hitters' parks. It would be unusual for such a well-run organization, at least by out <laughs> construct to not tailor <laughs> that. You know, we, we we see organizations do that, but it's always. Before we move away from effect sizes, I wanted to bring up just one other quick one. So, Adi, I always love asking you this question because your answer is always not a slight bit, not even a tiny bit. They put up a stat during the game yesterday, the Astros game, the Astros-Rangers game, that Bruce Bochy, three-time World Series champion manager with the Giants, his team has won the first game of a series 13 times with him as manager. He's won all 13. He's never lost a series. Never. 13, not 1-0, not 5-0, 13-0, in which his team has won the first game of the series. As you, if you were doing a forecast, forget that they're 2-0, as you are doing a forecast for the outcome of the series, is that worth, I love asking these questions, Adi, is that worth anything to you? Anything? You know, first of all, my general view of when someone says it's worth anything, I'm a, as a as a as a Bayesian, enough of a Bayesian, I don't I have a priors, right? And a prior has probabilities on non-zero numbers, and no amount of data can shake you away from that. So yes, it's worth something. The question is how much is it worth? And I would argue that it's worth so potentially so little that I wouldn't really work it into my forecast. The fact that they've already won two games is really all I need to know. They're a heavy favorite. And that's or another, another way of saying that is if I was to come up with some probability of them making it to winning the pennant, that would maybe be fat. That wouldn't even be a full percentage. Like it would be in like the fractional percentage. In the fractions, that exactly. It's, it's in that's, the, my, that's my guess at the effect. It's I in the decimals. I do have a kind of fun one about winning the pennant. If you like, you know, just again, fan graphs, one of our favorite predictors is not a coin flip model. They have Texas up to nothing in the series. The probability of the Astros still winning the pennant is at 25%. So keep that in mind. The (laughs) Phillies are up one nothing in the series. The probability of the Diamondbacks winning the pennant is also, well, it's 26%. It's basically the same. That's, yeah, that's that's, crazy. Like, again, I mean, as much as Astros don't fit the model, that's a full. You know, that's like, yeah, it's so crazy that those two events. And also, I guess you have to add a little bit. It's not only surprising, but it's shocking. But it obviously goes against any type of coin flip model. And for whatever value you put on home field, the Astros did also lose the first two at home. I mean, for whatever value you want to put on that. And the next three are in Texas. So that which of those two numbers, Shane, do you have more trouble believing? Yeah, right. Exactly. The Astros Uh, number, probably. The Diamondbacks number, I think, you know, that just because they're down one nothing to put them down to twenty five percent of winning this series, is that really? Okay, so this know, is back. Guess... This is the Fangraphs. We we've thought all season that the Fangraphs had too were too sure what they knew about teams, and they're too deterministic based on what they believe about the teams. They actually have um, very they have very strong priors at Fangraphs. They yeah, yeah no, I mean the yeah. very fact that you know uh, uh, we saw their little graphic before the playoffs began, where it's you know the Orioles. Well, anyway, I guess they were right about the Orioles. Uh, I want to. Audie got me thinking. Audie got me thinking actually about sort of cherry pick data because when he was talking about sort of you know um, that and uh, I just want a couple really cherry picked facts from the Phillies series because obviously we've been watching that intensely. Nick Castellanos 
at one point, and this is cherry picked, it's not current, had five home runs in eight at bats. That was his streak. That's so insane. When you hit home runs, less than five home runs in eight. Or another streak, the Phillies at one point had had 10 straight solo home runs. Yeah, nobody on base. <laughs> well, that's yeah. what happens when that's what happens when you have a leadoff hitter who basically strikes out a homer homers. Well, I mean, he walks a ton too. He does walk a ton. He's right. got like an OBP of like 0.4. No, okay. no, it's not that good. It's not that high. I wish it were. <laughs> Guys, I'm curious about this other thing. I'm gonna push us just a little bit on this other thing you mentioned and just took it as accepted early in the conversation, and that is the value of experience. And we, we talked about the Astros being experienced, and maybe that's how we explain seven straight. ALCS is, is their experience. Do we know, have we, has it been shown that experience in the playoffs contributes to better performance in, in future playoffs? I mean, do that's a, that's How a do you say, question. Talk about that, a confounded problem. It's like, Oh, our teams win. Do teams win a lot of times in a row because they're good or experienced? Yeah, I, I agree with, I agree with Shane. It's what's the causal estimate or effect you think you're measuring? I mean, the fact that the Astros have been there seven straight times. Yeah, they're experienced. Yeah, they're really damn good. And matter of fact, we have a lot of evidence that they're really damn good because of they've done this consecutively. So that's the issue is that in some sense, you know, I, for example, here's a paper that just got presented in my home department marketing here just the other day, which is how, matter of fact, it was, it was about this. How well do people perform? In this case, it was in games. Let's call it some sort of e-video game type of thing. After conditioning for strength and looking at consecutive performance. Mm -hmm. So now I'm going to control for the fact that the Astros have this strength parameter and the Rangers have this strength parameter. And then I'm going to try to understand how much does past performance add above and beyond that? Because without controlling for that, as Shane said, you have this not just confound. I don't know how you disentangle those two no, things. No, and I mean, like, it's interesting for because you've got first. something like Houston that seems to even conditional on it being good, show unusually good performance in the playoffs. And, you know, it's certainly... And but then you on the other flip side, you've got like, you know, the Dodgers and I guess the Braves, I mean, or more like early 2000s Braves, where they obviously are real, were really good, at least by regular season standards and just, you know, continue to like not make it through in the playoffs. And again, the you could probably explain that with coin flips as well. So it's really kind of like whether a team sort of, you know, significantly deviates from but that. Forget the, forget the team. You can't make it easier and just look at individual players. And can't we ask just how a player's oh, yeah. performance? Now, this is a, this, why is this not something that's frankly already been done? Surely it is. How does a, how does a player's experience in the playoffs contribute to his performance? Because we, we observe enough of that guy, over enough years to have some sense of his underlying quality, as Eric says, and then ask, what's the impact of experience per se? Just a couple of quick measurement issues. One is we could all have a debate about how to measure experience, right? So number of times, number of games, number of at-bats, although I don't think that's a massive effect. Second could be, are we going to allow for an interaction term between level of experience and success in that experience? Like, for example, um, right. if, you, if you've sucked, in the postseason, like, for example, at this point, playoff Kershaw, right. he's got a ton of experience in the postseason, but hasn't performed well in the postseason. Clayton so, Kershaw versus Nate Eovaldi are like such a study in two different pitchers where one just, just comes down the. Just yeah. one last quick thing. Adi, I don't I think you saw I don't know if you saw this stat, but our probably the greatest Yankee in our lifetime. Which, by the way, as we both agree, oh, Shane, oh, oh, hold on, stop, 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 no, stop, Shane. Who are they going to say? Oh, I know, because I think I, 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 I was the one that led to this. I, I, I think they're going to say Mo, or that—that's who they should say. Yeah, yeah I was going to say Mariano Rivera is good. the greatest Yankee in our lifetime. It's not Derek Jeter. It's not Derek Jeter by well, it's not by far. He's the well, he's not the. It depends what you want to call our lifetime. <laughs> no, Whatever. <come> on. <laughs> here's my here's my point. Poor guy having a body. Do you know? Superstar was slightly better. He just got passed because because he reached the number of innings. Zach Wheeler, Zach Wheeler, Adi is now number one all time in ERA in the postseason, lower than Mariano Rivera's zero point seven whatever. He's now in. Is is that based on innings in total? Is that why? Correct. He just Zach Wheeler. And by the way, Zach Wheeler's went up. Because I was at yesterday's game, and he gave up two runs and whatever six innings. But 
Even including that, he just made the 50-inning threshold. I don't know who knows who picked that number, but he's got the best ERA all-time of any pitcher. And by the way, two of the other three are, well, Kenley Jansen's one, but there's also Christy Mathewson and Sandy Koufax are the other yeah, two. the other two. I imagine that. This well, is actually kind of a good lead-in to, like, I kind of wanted to talk to you guys. Have you guys ever, like, kind of looked at win probability added – as, yeah, I, I don't. I mean, obviously, as a prospective measure, whatever. But like, as a ret- just a retrospective measure of how a player's done, especially in the playoffs, I think it's kind of an interesting measure. And I just want to bring, you know, I, I, you know, it's cool to bring it up in this particular case because Mariana Rivera, like, if you look at all time, kind of win probability added over all postseasons, Mariana Rivera, like, is like three standard deviations above the next highest dude. He's like added eleven point <laughs> seven wins. Right. <laughs> in his career. Next highest highest career is Kurt Schilling at like four point one. Oh my gosh. And they I basically have more... the same number of innings too, by the way. Yeah, yeah that's right. That's right. That that's with leverage. So because yeah. Rivera comes in and and he's he can change the, the amount by a lot because you're in the ninth inning and it's not a lead, not a big lead. If you come in with four run lead, forget it. That's not Yeah, no, and I mean for hitters it's the same way, you know, like uh yeah. A grand yeah. slam in the eighth versus a grand slam in the first is going to, even though those two things have the same yeah. run value. Oh, but Adi, oh, Adi, you just brought this up. I was, I was, I should have, I apologize. I should have tweeted at W Moneyball because of this. Do you, Adi, I don't know if you see, you didn't watch a lot of baseball recently. I think it was in game four, but might have been game three of the Braves Philly series. It's the seventh inning, seventh inning. Mm-hmm. Phillies are up, let's call it four, two or four, three. There's men on first and third with one out. The Phillies brought in the closer. Yeah. Cardiac Craig. Yeah. They brought in Craig. They brought in Kimbrell in the seventh inning, Adi. Not, and this was, you've said, can you, Adi, repeat yeah. for our listeners what you've said about this yeah. fact for years on our show? A, a run saved in any inning counts the same amount. It doesn't matter whether it's the ninth or the seventh. But, you know, this is something that, remember, um, that, um, that a comment we learned years ago um, that, if that you have to have the pitcher ready, right? And you typically don't have the the closer ready in the seventh inning. If, and so if you got to that first and third with enough time to get your closer up, then you can bring him in. But if it happened too quickly and you didn't have the the you didn't have him preparing, you wouldn't be able to do it. And that's uh, this is this is um, uh, 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 I mean I forget who told us this. So. Well, I mean, but it's also in the context. I mean, I feel like when we used to talk about, oh, bring in your closer at that high, most high leverage, even if it's not the ninth, you were envisioning a closer that was demonstrably like he was by far your best relief pitcher. Right. Now we don't have that. that I mean, that's not the cardiac craze. And it's not Kimbrel. Right. Yeah. Guys, uh, speaking of pitching in these playoffs, and as we wrap up and head out of here, I just want to acknowledge that baseball still has a monopoly on I think, well, there's, there's two competitors for this, the best moment in sports, the best situation in sports. And one of them is penalty kicks in soccer, you know, high stakes soccer games that come down to penalty kicks. And the other is these late inning matchups, just the face down between a pitcher and a hitter in key moments. It doesn't get other than that soccer penalty kick. It doesn't get better. I'm a very casual baseball fan, but you give me, you know, you give me this three, two game, Moments of ten game last night. Last night, the early Uh, game last night. Last night, Gurriel at the plate against Jansen with two men on. Trust me, none of us at the stadium were happy. Wait, I'm going to (laughs) push back on that because although the soccer one is super exciting, that's a coin toss, and and you're really that's fair. Yeah, I think that's 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 fair. That that. Well, I mean, you know, I mean, there's certain players that are better than others, but I mean, it's still the outcome. Even the outcome of a, 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 a an at bat. You know, it 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 it's well, that, it is that it's a one. It's a very defined, not predictable, and it's but it's highly not, chance. It's not random. Yeah. No, it it behaves no. functionally like randomness. Well, if if you're if you're a jury no. member, the probability I don't think that's of fair. your team succeeding is around point five. Like is in that the fifty percent. That doesn't mean it's the, the outcome isn't determined by success. And by, I mean, this is now we're touching on a philosoph- philosophical issue, which I'd love to spend time on. But I think you're I, I mean, I'm completely. Dis- yeah, I, I guess. Maybe OK, we're arguing okay good. So random. you're I, kudos to you for taking it deeper. I'm just going for drama at the moment. Yeah. I'm acknowledging the drama of the late playoff inning pitcher batter face off and high leverage moments. It's really it's really a beautiful thing. All right, guys. That has been the first half of Wharton Moneyball. Come back and join us. We have a second half, another open line segment after the break. 
You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome back to the second half of a full hour on sports analytics here on Sirius XM. This is Cade Massey hosting with the whole crew this week. Audie Weiner is here. Shane Jensen is here. Eric Bradlow is here. We're recording on Tuesday morning, a few hours earlier than usual. The show will go up live, not live. The show will be will be will be will be on Sirius XM tomorrow morning, replayed a few times over the course of the weekend. We'll also get the podcast up tomorrow as well. Last night, the Rangers took game two to go up two nothing on the road against the Astros, going back to Dallas for the next three games. The Phillies jumped early, and we mean first pitch early on the Diamondbacks and took game one in Philadelphia. We talked through baseball in the first half. We've got a little football to talk about here in the second half. Guys, why don't we start with NFL? Um, It wasn't as pretty a story on the Philadelphia side for football. We I I watched some of the first half of that game and thought, well, here's Philadelphia rolling. Here's Jalen Hurts doing his thing. Those poor Jets, those poor Jets fans having to rely on Zach Wilson. Little did I know. What do I know about football? Adi, did you catch any of your Jets yesterday? I, I, I'm going to have to point out that I did catch my the Jets, despite being at a wedding. <laughs> it was uh, it was uh, something that is, reflects a deep change in my personality regarding football. And it's your fault, Kate. Yes, <laughs> I'm very proud. I'm very proud of the evolution, Adi. It's, good. it's tough for me because I've adopted the Eagles as my, my team because the Jets are so out of it year in and year out. <laughs> And I learned something at the, when they lost at the at, at the the, uh, the Super Bowl last year, and I'm with all Philly people, and they're just crying. And I got up and went, "Ah, oh, what's for dinner?" <laughs> and I realized that as much as I adopted the Phillies, I don't have the hometown um, kind of uh, 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 drive. Um, and Jets are still my favorite team. I, so, Adi, tell me real quickly, yeah. which which is the better fan experience? It's not clear to me. It's not clear to me now. I may be an emotional child, so maybe I'm not the right person. But it's not clear to me. It's a better fan experience to be watching the team that you live and die with. I can really enjoy sports with just a couple of teams that I am, you know, mildly know a few things about and just kind of take it, consume the game with the emotional equanimity, you know, what do you think? What's the better experience? Well, it's emotional. You know, so I really enjoy watching, watching the Phillies because um, I've adopted them. I root for them. I want them to do well. And, uh, and, but I don't have that craziness. I don't, I'm not going to fall yeah. apart. Like, you know, so that, that is, that is, a, that is a nice equanimity. I do like it. Mm-hmm. Eric. Yeah. So here's the question, you know, all of us has to ask ourselves, you know, you know, did the Jets win the game or did the Eagles lose the game? Oh, well, that's the reason I say that, let me just let me finish. Now, it's, it's partly due to what happened by the Jets defense. But, you know, Jalen Hurts had never thrown three interceptions in a game before. Now, the Jets have something to do with that. Um, I don't. I wanted people to stop talking about Jalen Hurts for MVP. At least six games in twelve. Sorry, six games into the season. We're talking about that. People have talked. People had been talking about it prior to this game. He's got seven touchdowns and seven interceptions right now for the season. Um, you know, not particularly a great season. But here's the question: A lot of people think that the Eagles lost that game as opposed to the Jets winning that game. Regardless, if you look at the quality of wins right now, if I've got it right, Adi, the Jets have beaten the Eagles, the Bills, and I don't even know who was the third team they beat. I don't remember. <laughs> was it the Was it the Patriots or the Broncos? It must have been one of the two. I think it might have been the Patriots. No, they lost to the Patriots. Oh, well, you mean the first game of the season was the Patriots? The Patriots. All right. So, again, all I'm commenting on is the Jets haven't – I mean, they've beaten. If you told me you beat the Eagles and the Bills, you've got that's got to be worth something, though, right? For sure, for sure. Yeah. It's, never mind the fact they're doing it without Aaron Rodgers. I mean, come on, it's super. Yeah, impressive. no, and I mean that's why I'm excited. Is that, I mean, if he could actually like imagine this story where they somehow stay in playoff contention, like basically the question is, do you think they can stay in an absolutely stacked conference? Can they stay in playoff contention? all season such that if Aaron comes back, like, you know, I mean, he's wants to be back by week 12, whatever. Let's say he comes back like week 17 or something like that. Can they stay? Can they basically. Is that, know, is that running? realistic? I've not, maybe I've not been following no. his rehab close enough. Is there any real, well, I mean, no. I, it would be unprecedented. Week 12 would be unprecedented. I think once you get to week 17 kind of would be unprecedented. 
Is it not? I thought Achilles is a kind of injury that you're just out for the year. That's done. I, I it so. usually is, but you know. We'll yeah, the, thing, the, the thing that I've heard about I is mean, if you you're know, a Jets fan, that's what you're cheering for. Because I mean, we can agree as 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 amazing as the awful. Jets run has been. Yeah. You know, they're going nowhere. You know, once it gets down to the good teams, unless Aaron Rodgers somehow miraculously. Yeah, here, here's your story if you're a Jet fan. So here are I won't list every game, but they're playing the Giants, the Charters, the Raiders, the Texans, the Falcons, the Commanders. Damn, this is a soft schedule. I'm just saying, yeah, you win six out of those eight games, you're already at nine wins. All I'm commenting on is they're only good teams, quote unquote. If you want to call the Browns good, the Dolphins obviously are good. Yeah. That's it. I'm done. Well, they have to play the Pats again. I said the Pats. The Bills, sorry. (laughs) They've got the Bills, the the Dolphins. The Pats are terrible. No, I know. I I know. You know that. I'm just saying the Jets can go nine and nine and eight. Why not? Why not? So this, well, whether nine eight gets I'm, you into the playoffs, I don't know, but yeah, I'm skeptical about calling records. I mean, uh, schedules, uh, saying definitively what's easy and what's hard. I mean, we're seeing you heard that truth about. Okay, I mean, I, mean, I agree in I general. Know, you heard that. I know there are differences. Clearly, there are differences, but the the NFL is so even overall, and and variance is so high that as we've seen, anybody can beat anybody. I mean, when when we're seeing the, I mean. Real, real close, real close to that, right. except for the tails, except for the tails, especially when you're not a definitively good team. The Jets are middle of the pack. That means they've got a lot of teams. By definition, that means they've got a lot of teams that are very comparable to them. There's, there's no there's no six out of eight. There's, you can say with no confidence that they're going to get six out of eight, even against the Rams. No, no, I didn't say with any confidence. I'm just saying it's – by the way, if you look at the Jets' schedule, most people would say the hard part of their schedule is over. Mm-hmm. They've played the Bills, the Cowboys – the Chiefs and the Eagles already. Yeah, that's pretty. <laughs> and they're three and three. So speaking that's of what, what, the what, Eagles' schedule coming up in November is going to be a real gauntlet too. We'll find out whether you know whether whether they're legit this year or not. But you know, we, so who who else is standing out to you? And by the way, what do we Miami. make of the? What do we make of the? Well, yes, but on the low side, what do you make of the Bills? I mean, how can it be that the Bills are doing what the Bills are doing? And what what are we to understand about that? What do you what do you what are the Bills doing? Winning at a far lower game, rate than we expected them to games? win. Well, they're four and two, right? Four and yeah. two. They should have. Well, I, mean, the, I should... guess the closeness, the closest of the games, they're okay. supposed to be the the cream of the crop. They're supposed to be in a you know. Are they? Yeah, I think, I think coming they didn't into even the make season, it to the we final four that. last year. Well, that's not, but that's because of who they ran into in the in the round before. I mean, it's just the luck of the okay. draw. All right. I but think I mean, they, you, you, it's, it sounds like you think they're improved upon last year to this year. You would have put them. I, I mean, I, I, I have them as a top ten team, but I don't. You know, I think that's lower than expected. Okay, but I, not, I, yeah. I think just one quick thing. I think if you ask Nikkei, the team that has been the most, I'm not just saying this because they beat the Buccaneers this week. A lot of people are talking about the Lions, and there were high expectations at the beginning of the season. I think a legitimate argument can be, you know, maybe not quite yet, but, you know, they could be talked about in the same conversation as the 49ers and the Eagles. I mean, I, I mean, I said not quite really? yet, but really? they're in that next tier. I think everybody would say in the NFC, which is considered weaker, it's the Eagles and Niners at the top, then the Lions, and then a whole bunch of other teams. So, by the way, they were considered weaker coming into the season. I'm not. That's not the way they're talked about now. The last couple of weeks, it's been Eagles and the Niners are the cream of the whole league, and that's. I mean, that's a big difference. That's because of how how much the AFC has come down in people's eyes since the start of the year. Chiefs have been wobbly. The Bills have been wobbly. The Bengals started out super wobbly. They seem to have come on, but that's, I that's, personally that's, still see. I personally still see the NFC as two to three teams on top not and then the lions now you know the, the 49ers eagles and cowboys on top and then the or cow, cowboys i would be you know maybe one b and then lions are like tier two so you put the lions below the cowboys right now and even the way they've played get priors for just a second though you'd put given the way they've actually played this season you would put the lions below the eagles no no, no okay i mean wait wait wait, wait. below the eagles Given that out, no, no. I mean, again, the Lions look like a top. You know, I mean, look like 
a top two team in the NFC just based on current season results. But I, I do build in priors and that's what's reforming yeah. my kind of clustering. Um, I, I mean, in-season results, if we just go by in-season results, Miami is going to the Super Bowl. We thought this last year too. They've been so amazing. Do you know Tyreek Hill already has, what is it, like 800 yards? 814. 814 yards in six so, games. So Shane, actually played that out a little bit. You're saying... Yeah. If you only considered in season, you'd have the Dolphins like that. What weight should the Priors have on a team like Miami? And do you, do you ever? This goes back to our one of our old questions about: Are the results are the results ever so beyond expectations that you think maybe I had the Priors wrong? No, well, I mean, yes, I, I mean, certainly that's true. I would never throw the Priors away because I guess. You wouldn't throw you know, them away, but would you Miami, ever? Miami is one key injury away from snapping back to whatever no. prior we have, right? I mean, like Miami with Tua looks like, you know, a historically great offense. No, but we Kate's still asked, ask you what happened to him. I got to talk about Kate's question because I've been <laughs> thinking about this for the entire week. I've never thought about it this way. And, and no one, well, I think Shane and I are equally Bayesian. Adi's a little late to the party, but whatever. So I don't <laughs> want to get into that, but that's not the point. Is it okay for you? to change your prior. Like, can you observe the data and say, oh, my prior must have been wrong? Or could you, are you or even if I say my prior's the same, but the effective sample size I'm going to put on the prior is different. And so to me, I would think from a technical Bayesian perspective, the answer is no. Oh, right? no, oh, no, no, I mean, exactly. <laughs> you change your prior, by multiplying it by a likelihood and updating, you are changing. I know, your I know, I know, I know but, but no, I'm asking a different. I'm asking a different question. I'm asking Cade's question. Re- you want to retrospectively yeah. go? No, back. I don't want to do that. I'm asking. I'm answering Cade's question. Where Cade asks a legitimate question. That's that's because I'm the least orthodox Bayesian here. I can ask the most blasphemous questions. And what I will say is. I've pulled one of you into my speculative camp. When I asked this question two years ago, I got the same blasphemous run me out, run me out of the temple with a stick reaction from all three of you. This time, Eric, we're only going to get it from two of them. Shane. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I, Under, me, let, I, me, let, me, let me ask you people to set aside your orthodoxy and answer the following question. Under what conditions might that be the right response? Well, I mean, if your prior is quite obviously wrong. Exactly. Yeah. That's, is that ever possible? Prior, so, um, so maybe it was, again uh, a, a flexible you would i would hope you know I, you you want a flexible a, a, enough model where the prior can be kind of diagnosed as wrong by the model you know like good, like good, like you good. want something where the prior doesn't you know has the option to be down you know change or down like the, essentially in the model like where you can kind of downweight something that looks particularly you do bad. that when most, you make most, it most models do have that so you're baking in from the beginning the possibility that there are things you don't know. Yeah. And that's or, or that's that you really, really missed really... with a particular prior. Yeah. yeah. You know what? I mean, the truth is, is that the, the, you have to be clear. If you're an Orthodox Bayesian, you're really not supposed to be doing this. You should have this baked <laughs> into your prior before you start. But I'm going to stand up and say, I'm not Orthodox Bayesian. I mean, and which means that they're Bayes are just a procedure to, to do an estimation, right? It's not a, you don't have to, I mean, you don't have to, treated anything more than that and you can say well i have a bunch of different priors and 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 maybe this one i mean the idea is you're not supposed to look at your data afterwards and then say well maybe that's my prior that was wrong and nothing to prevent you from doing it but well, I, I, it, it just breaks the orthodoxy it just it just does let me, so let's 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 make it let's bring it back to practical terms and miami is exceptional but there may not be so exceptional that we should be having this conversation. I would be curious why Eric's been thinking about it for the last week, but in Miami's case. No, I said I was going to be thinking about it for the next week. Oh, for the next week. you okay. asked the question, I was thanking okay. you. So there are teams, I think, that come along like Colorado this year or a team that plays a different offense out of the blue. Like when Lamar Jackson, you know, they, they mm-hmm. you come along and you're just, you're seeing something you haven't seen before. Is there anything about Miami that would lead you to say, you know, maybe structurally the past that we use to build our prior isn't relevant. And maybe we've learned that since the beginning of the season. And therefore, maybe I want to go back and revisit where that thing came from. Something like that, some structural misunderstanding or miss that would lead you to that. And it would have to be, look, we just haven't seen this collection of talent and play calling and scheme 
before. Now I'm making it up. I think that's not the yeah, case. Yeah, I mean but... Miami's maybe not the best case because we did see it last year until Tua went down. I mean exactly. it's the exact same thing. I mean, you know, we have I feel like I I'm buying into it even more than I did last year because they did this, you know, they were blowing the doors off teams. I mean, maybe not 70 to 20, but they were blowing the doors off teams offensively last year. Tua gets injured. And of course that that was that basically. They snap they snap back to our, you know, you know, me- mediocre prior or whatever. Right. Um, right. Whereas here, he's just, you know, I mean, he, you know, to the extent that he stays healthy, they continue to light it up this year. And again, it's like they're, they're averaging like 500 yards of total offense. By the way, oh, sorry, go ahead. Again. I just, I think just to clarify, I think what, what, what Kennedy you're talking about is known unknowns and unknown unknowns. Yeah, sure. Known unknowns are supposed to be captured by the priors. When you have right. unknown unknowns and you, and then Good. the world just reveals itself, you're like, oh shit. And so for example, I mean, um, in, in baseball, that could be a rule change that you didn't realize would have this kind of implication. And then you just, now you have to change your priors because these teams would have, say, that run all the time are doing things that you just didn't forecast. And then there's no point keeping to shrinking them back to their preseason uh, predictions when when it's just a get, different game. And I think that's what could happen in football. But do, is it? I don't know. So let me just make a clarification because a lot of our listeners may also be um, Bayesians like all of us. What we're suggesting, and this is also an homage to someone that Shane and I knew well who just passed away recently, which is Carl Morris, one of our mentors, certainly at Harvard. He had a very important distinction between Bayesian inference and empirical Bayes inference. Because let's be clear, if you're an empirical Bayesian, you'll say something like the Miami Dolphins win percentage, some transformation of it is normally distributed with some mean and some variance, but I don't know the mean and the variance. But then I'm going to pick the value of the mean and variance that best fit the data. Now, as the data changes, you do go back and change your estimate of what the prior mean and variance would have been to give you the highest likelihood of observing the data you have. That's what an empirical Bayesian does. Now, we're talking about a different form, which Carl called, and Carl, by the way, said, my favorite expression of all the times I met with Carl was, he said, there's nothing less Bayesian than empirical Bayesian. (laughs) <laughs> because you're changing the prior based yeah. on the observed data. But let me just say, empirical based, it does exactly that. That's my only comment. Yeah, I mean, I think, and I mean, I, I don't really disagree about empirical Bay, and I agree with Audi. Like, you know, whatever procedure you use, you, you can be as, you you want, in, in sports performance, I think you want to have something that's not too, I don't know, what's a word, dogmatic or something like that, because you need to allow for these kind of, edge cases or whatever these people either individuals or teams that kind of don't necessarily shouldn't be pulled you don't know whether or not they should be pulled towards a mean or whatever you're doing with them um i mean another example of that i think right now not not at the team level but individual level is brock purdy you know he just lost his first game after winning his first 10 in a row when he first started you know obviously he was like a third string injury replacement quarterback last year that played very well. At what point do we sort of like, like Purdy now going forward, do you kind of now, are you totally just, do you expect like kind of what he's observed so far in the NFL or do you still put much of a prior on the fact that he was 199th pick? He came out of nowhere. We obviously have a priori. We would not, you know, we, we still believe he was not going to be a contender or like a good quarterback. I, I think that's a perfect example of what I'm talking about. I mean, and a, a pure Bayesian would not would would go back to the 199 and all the priors and yeah. we just take five out of six wins and say that's what we got and that and and well, uh, and even not a pure shift. Not not to interrupt too much, but like a pure Bayesian could still have a model that is like kind of non-stationary where it's allowing yes. you like yes. like pure Bayesians yeah. Yeah. allow the prior 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 to be washed out yeah. as data accumulates as well. It's not like that prior is always in there at the same strength. I just want to observe that the two examples we've been talking about both involve at least potentially interactions, which mm-hmm. which which models have trouble with when you don't have any more data than we have in the NFL. We don't have reliable models with these interactions that say, well, Purdy's Purdy, Purdy. He's a 199th pick until he runs into Shanahan or Shanahan is like a great coach, yeah. but he's especially great. And the same thing with two. I mean, Mike McDaniel. This is what I'm saying. Is, yeah, yeah. McDaniel, Tua, and Brady Belichick. 
Yeah, you give us some of these combinations and they they they're they're it's easy to miss them because our models run more linear when we, we don't have the data to really yeah. estimate those. And things. just one last quick thing. Um a lot of times when a lot of people talk about changing the prior, they might be talking about like, well, you your mean was too high or your variance especially was too low. Another possibility is that we don't recognize what I'll call mixture priors. Like there's one hump that says Brock Purdy was no chance he was gonna be good. Yeah. But maybe we should put a small probability on the second hump that we have no idea that there is a positive probability. So it's not about moving the center. It's not about widening it, although those are fine, too. It's about recognizing we should have a mixture distribution. And maybe going back to your original term, Cade, when we were talking about baseball in the first half of the show, there are multiple mechanisms at play. Let's put some probability on each of these mechanisms. And if you want the, he's not going to be good to be the bigger of the two humps than the other one, I'm fine with that. But let's model things as mixtures as opposed to just shifting the mean and the variance. Yeah, and you're just, I, I think you're talking about a, a more clever way of kind of modeling the uncertainty that we have coming out of like draft, like coming out of like coming out of college and 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 going into like, you know, draft decision making. All right, fellas. Well, speaking of, priors and uh optimally having weaker priors college football this year is really interesting i've given you the pep talk before and i'm gonna give it to you again this is one of the most open college football seasons we've seen in a very long time which means it's great fun we've got the top five i believe this this week are teams from five different conferences all five conferences are very much in play for the playoff and in fact you know, there's some probability that a very deserving team is going to have to be cut out in the end. Lots of football left. Usually those things take care of themselves, but this is great fun. This time last year, something like only six teams had greater than a 20% chance, according to some models of making the playoffs. And this year, I believe it's 10, 10, halfway through the season, 10 teams have a 20% or greater chance of making the playoffs. It's just much flatter than it has been in the past. And the leading contender all year, Georgia, has just lost its best player, Brock Bowers, their tight end, their game-changing tight end to ankle surgery. Now he's going to have a surgery they think he's going to get back from in just four or five weeks, but they happen to play. Same Rodgers, Rogers, Rogers. That Well, good. So that's going to put him, yeah, <laughs> no, I, maybe, I, I, not I, I, that, maybe not miraculous like that. But I'm just naming, pay attention as we roll into the last half of the season. It's an unusually fun one. Why do I wish there were 12 teams this year rather than four? It would be a great, great season for a 12-team playoff. All right, guys, that has been this week's Wharton Moneyball, this week's one hour of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. For the whole crew here, Eric, Shane, Adi, this has been Cade. For Matty Dads, the boss fan, and Dion Simpkins, the associate boss fan, thank you guys for listening. Come back and join us next time. Between now and then... Enjoy your sports.